Luke chapter 18, verse 1, uh, will not be our text this morning, though I will read it. This, like most of the sermons in the New Testament, is a topical sermon. And uh, so I want to uh, look at uh, a particular subject, which I'll speak to in a minute. Well, I guess I'll just tell you. I want to look at the subject of unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer. And to set the stage, not so much to exposit this text, but to set the stage... I want to read one of the great passages in the scriptures on the really heart-touching subject of unanswered prayer. Oh, and then I was going to tell you, uh, I'm going to start preaching through Matthew in a couple of weeks, so looking forward to that too. So uh, Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 1, and he told them a parable, he is Jesus, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always they ought always to pray and not lose heart he said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared god nor respected man and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying give me justice against my adversary for a while he refused but afterwards he said to himself though i neither fear god nor respect man Yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Father, we want to come before you and ask you that all of the deep doubt and discouragement that comes into our lives because of unanswered prayer would be so thoroughly addressed that we would go home leaping and praising God for your amazing faithfulness. Lord, uh, I'm not worthy to preach your word. Thank you for clothing me in Christ's righteousness. Please fill me with your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, what are the greatest obstacles to prayer, your, your prayer life, what would you say? If you were to make up a mental list, what comes into your mind when you think about great obstacles to prayer? Author John Bloom has compiled a list uh, full of reasons we often hear. You've heard these. Won't be anything revolutionary. We're distractible. We're lazy. We're busy. We've had poor models. We lack a clear plan for how and when to pray. We're overwhelmed by the sheer volume of people and things to pray for. Our adversary opposes our praying, and the list goes on. Now, Bloom doesn't just uh, have this great list of typical obstacles to our prayers. He also has a critical insight. One of the greatest obstacles to our prayers, he says, is that it often appears the prayers don't work. We pray, and it seems 
God doesn't answer. We hear some sermon series uh, where the preacher says something like, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. So we carve out a half an hour a day and make sure we're praying whatever we will and then whatever we will, well, sometimes it happens, but then as we go on, the prayer requests don't all seem to be answered. And we begin to flag in the great discipline of prayer. And often we feel discouragement, disillusionment, weariness, doubt, sometimes despair. And all of these spiritual obstacles mount up in front of us so high that the eyes of faith can't seem to see over them. And we lose our will to pray. Who wants to discipline themselves for a regular time of prayer when a regular time of prayer is just an appointment with darkness? Who wants to be faithful to a discipline that seems futile? Would you go to a job that didn't make any money? It turns out unanswered prayer is one of the greatest obstacles to prayer. Over the years, I've seen multiple professing Christians leave the faith. One of the reasons they leave is unanswered prayer. They cried out to God, they ran away from sin, they prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and he did not answer. And so they pull away from the God who let them down. Of course, unanswered prayer is not enough to move a true Christian to quit following God. But it is enough to drain the joy out of our lives like a nail will slowly drive the air out of a tire. We still believe. We still worship. But when it comes to prayer, there's a suspicion in our soul towards God. There's like a dark shadow cast over the brightness of His face. And I want to push so deep into the mystery of unanswered prayer that each and every one of us is able and eager to keep interceding, whether God moves mightily after a minute of prayer or whether he waits a millennium to answer our prayers. Let's jump in. Let me give you three reasons why prayer goes unanswered. And the first is sin. It's not the only answer. Before we're done this morning, we're going to see other factors that cause another answered prayer. We're going to look at unseen angelic battles in the heavenly places that delay answered prayer. We will think about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility to persevere. But before any of these, we need to think about sin. Sin is the primary reason God does not answer our prayers. Nowadays, many people, many non-Christians, and many poorly taught Christians think that prayer is always a good thing. No matter what, you can have a friend whose life is a whole mess and they're, they're getting into all kinds of horrible stuff, but then someone assures you, but at least they pray. Because of course, as long as someone's praying, there's something good going on in their life. You hear people say things like, I haven't been to church in years, but I, I pray all the time. And the idea there is, I may not do the not so important stuff, like the stuff God commands, but at least I pray. And so we're supposed to go, oh, at least you got the important thing going in your life. But those sort of attitudes reflect 
the fact that we haven't read our Bibles and we haven't read especially the words of Proverbs 28.9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Prayer is not an automatic good thing. It's not automatically a good thing that people pray. If someone turns their ear away from hearing God's teaching, hearing God's instruction, then their prayer is something that actually stinks in God's nostrils. It's something that God doesn't enjoy. Boy, if the book of Isaiah taught us anything, it ought to have taught us that formal religion without reality is deplorable to God. When a person gives themselves over to disobedience, then their prayers become disgusting. And this is why every single non-Christian prayer is abominable to God. The chief characteristic of an unbeliever in the Bible is that they live by their own opinion. They, they, they live by man-made religions. They have gone their own way. They do not obey God's law. In fact, the Bible says they cannot. They're so hardened against God. And because of this, moral Mormon prayers and generic patriotic prayers of American civil religion and Hindu prayers and Buddhist prayers and Muslim prayers are all rejected and repulsive to God. It isn't Muslims at their best when they pray. It isn't America at her best when she prays. When people turn their ear from hearing God's law, the Word of God says even their prayer is an abomination. All of these friends and neighbors are in sin, and they're given over to lawlessness, and so their prayers are rejected by God. Their prayers God make God feel the way we feel when one of our kids is lying to us and they come to give us a kiss as if nothing is going on. It's abominable. Now, the reason that a Christian's prayers are acceptable is not first and foremost because we're obedient. Christian prayer and Christian obedience go together. We're going to see that. But first and foremost, the reason why a Christian's prayers are acceptable to God is not first and foremost, because we are obedient. It's because there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, says 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's because there's someone who's come between us and God. It's because there is a mediator between God that makes us acceptable to God and makes our prayers acceptable to Him. I love Romans chapter 1 where Paul says, I thank my God through Christ Jesus. And you're like, well, surely if there's anything you can do directly with God, Paul, it would be thank him. I mean, surely God just would love just you to say thank you. No, no, no. Paul says, if I say thank you to God, even there I go through Jesus. My very best moments dare not be presented to God apart from the perfect life and sacrifice of Jesus. And so, honestly, if you are interested in prayer at all, and feel distant from God, I would invite you to call out to God through Jesus Christ. It's through Him that you can find a mediator that will bring you to God, that will make your filthy prayers cleaned up and acceptable in the sight of a holy, holy God. Now, a person might say, and many Christians seem to have this attitude, that since Jesus paid it all, now all my prayers are guaranteed to be answered no matter what I do. I'm justified. I'm declared righteous. 
I'm a Christian. If I pray, bada boom, bada bing, it's going to happen. It's going to be God's will for my prayer to be answered because now he sees me through Christ's perfections as if I'd never done anything wrong. And because there's this perfect righteousness between me and God, now whatever I pray, it's going to happen. That's the way many speak, or at least the way many act. But the Bible has no time for such an attitude. And I just want to say, the next number of paragraphs I'm going to preach to you are, are hard preaching, but I'm preaching them to my own heart. 1 Peter 3.7 Brothers, likewise live with your husbands. Ah, don't do that. Likewise husbands, live with your wives. And now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, if we don't honor our wives, listen to our wives, understand our wives, then you can talk to God all day. He's not listening. I, I remember hearing just recently about a man who was doing uh, a marriage conference uh, for families from the Middle East, and he would have the men and women sit together and just let the man talk for two minutes, and the woman would just listen, and the woman would talk for two minutes, and the man would just listen, and, and it was like something they'd never done before. And the wives walked away going, that was so romantic. Two minutes of listening. I mean, that's all it takes. But there, there really is a sense in which we need to recognize that the sinful tendency of our soul is, is stronger means I get to maximize the situation for myself. But the biblical attitude is if she's weaker, then there ought to be an increased showing of honor and there ought to be an increased pursuit of understanding and there ought to be a, an awareness that if I want to flourish in my prayer life, it doesn't start with making time between 7 and 7.30 every morning. It starts with how I repent of the way I treat my wife and really how I repent of any ways I've dishonored or not understood her. And of course, this principle, it's not like, hey, husbands, God won't listen to your prayers if you sin, but everyone else, the sky's the limit. That's not what's being said here. The principles being laid down that though Christians always have this standing of righteousness before Christ, before God, through Christ, we can hinder our fellowship and really the eagerness of the Father to answer us by how we treat others, whether we treat them in righteousness or we treat them in sin. God's marvelous justification of us, declaring us righteous, his forgiving us, his ransoming us with his own blood is never an excuse to slacken in our fight against sin. 
And, and the reality, the sanctification. Now listen with me, because I, I hear this error. I've seen it in my own life at times. I see it in the body. The reality that sanctification is never perfect in this life is never a reason to make peace with our sin. So as, as folks who absorb a Reformed view of sanctification, we say, are you going to be perfect in this life? No, okay. And, and so, but then what happens is, is that we logically work out a false conclusion. Since I'm not going to be perfect, I ought to be content with this imperfection. The Bible never makes that logical leap. It never goes there. Not for one shred of an iota of a verse. It is never, ever leaning in that direction. The idea is this, that because you're made perfect by Christ and going to be made perfect on the last day, that you ought to strive with all of your might to be like Him today. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. So listen to the way the Bible speaks about sin. And I'll just throw, I don't know, seven, eight, nine verses at you. This is the way the Bible speaks about sin, and we can think about it especially as it tends our prayer lives. If your eye causes you to sin, you should know that all guys struggle with porn. And it's no big deal because Jesus has justified you. Not what the verse says. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Here is the way Paul speaks about sin when he, when he speaks about what you ought to do with sin. Flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10.18. Flee from sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Speaking of the desires to be rich, he says, flee these things. In other words, there's a sense in which we ought, you ought to be able to point to the things that you are running away from in your life. And everyone who knows you ought to be able to say, I see them running. They are running away from someone. I, I remember one time when Christy and I lived by the old church building, and uh, we had some very interesting things happen in our backyard. And one of the things that we just see people hop our fence and run like they were trying to get away from someone through our backyard. And I, I, didn't, I never thought to myself, now I wonder what kind of goodness they're up to. <laughs> I knew they were running away from something. And there ought to be this mark in a Christian's life. Like you can tell they're running away from someone. And one of the things I've noticed uh, in the body here at Emmanuel, I've noticed I've let myself get away with sin this way, is because this sort of like none of us are perfect, none of us is perfect, as long as each of us dole out a little confession every now and then, the rest of us will just say, okay, you must be good. But it's not enough just to acknowledge that there's a little struggle with sin. There ought to be a marked noticeable characteristic of the life, that person keeps running away from things. When you confront them about what they're in, they run away from it. They don't see how close they can stay. They don't see how, how much they can nuzzle up next to the sin and not technically be over the line. They are running from idolatry. They are running from sexual immorality. They are running from the desire to be rich. In other places, Paul says, put to death Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, one of the problems with pastoring a bunch of city kids is many of you haven't killed anything. And uh, 
I suppose overall that's good, that the only thing that's ever died at your hands was a frog in a fairly, fairly painless way in eighth grade or something like that. But just do imagine for a second the effort that takes to actually choke something until there's no more life in it. To actually stab something until it actually dies. To hold something underwater until it actually drowns. This is what we're supposed to do with our sin. We're supposed to kill it. We're supposed to work at it and fight it and attack it until it breathes its last and it's dead. And yet none of us, very few of us, actually approach sin in this way. You know, we want to hedge our bets against sin. We want, to, we want to sort of try not to sin too much. But we are called to kill sin. There ought to be dead corpses of sin around the Christian's life. There ought to be areas where they were sinning, and now there's dead man's bones where they were walking, where they saw something they were doing, and they kill it where they refuse to do it. And this won't always feel great. I know in my own struggles against anger, it often just means you bite your tongue and refuse to say the ungodly thing. Or if you give in to that, then you take your lumps and ask God to forgive you and ask the people you've hurt to forgive you because you are slicing and dicing and you are destroying that thing which would tear you down. This is the way the Bible speaks about sin. No one should say, I think I fought sin today. Right? Can you imagine? How's it going? Well, I think I've been fighting sin pretty good. You, you think? Like, what if I said to you, yeah, I was out in the woods, and I think I wrestled a bear to the ground. You think you wrestled a bear to the ground? Yeah, I might have. It was a long day. No, you do not ever forget wrestling a bear to the ground. It's never like, let me think about this. Did I wrestle a bear to the ground? It's a noticeable part of your engaged, conscious life. I'm fighting sin. I am taking thoughts captive. I'm stabbing realities that would tear me down. That's what's happening to me. And if we run into other Christians and they look exhausted because they've been in that fight, that's fine. That's normal Christian life. That's let me pray for you. Let me stab my own sin alongside of you. There, there is a constant fight in us. Observing sin is not the same as noticing sin, or as killing sin. And many people think that because they know the sin in their life, that they're fighting it. But knowing it and fighting it are two different things. Back to my bear illustration. I saw a bear in the woods. That's one thing. I killed the bear in the woods. Very different. You might forget you saw a bear. You will never forget if you kill one. And the same ought to be true. And, and listen to this. In the, the writer of the Hebrews, listen to the, listen to the way he talks about fighting sin. You know, we often come to each other and say, I know you've been fighting hard. You know, it's normal that you would give in. It's rough. I'm sorry. He, the writer of Hebrews has no time for that. He says, in your struggle against sin you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now listen, you're all dressed up real nice this morning. And none of us have resisted sin to the point of shedding our blood. But that's the goal. You fight it so hard, you'd fight it till you bleed. And you're gonna be okay. And all this talk about how weak we are and how anxious we are and how, how we can't handle it. And we're going to have a panic attack if we have to face so many hard things. It's all a lie from the devil to keep you from fighting something till it's dead. 
Our heavenly coach says, keep running. You haven't even started running. Now, I know no modern coach would ever say this, at least not out loud, but Pastor Jeff King used to train under cross-country coaches that called their athletes to run until they puke. Jesus calls us to fight sin until we bleed. Emmanuel, if we would be a praying people who see God answer prayer, then we must be a holy people who fight sin. If we would be a people who see more answered prayers, then we must be individuals who fight sin until we bleed. Now someone will say, I've been praying for more victory over sin, and it's not coming. You need to do less praying. You need to do less praying. I love at the end of Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure, he's talking about spiritual depression, the fight against spiritual depression, and the last chapter of the book is a, an exposition of Philippians 4, which is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here's the last paragraph of the book, paraphrased. He says, now here then is the remedy. Do not go on praying, beseeching the Lord for power. Do what he has said to do, and you'll meet the power there. The Christian life is like the old Wednesday night prayer meetings. No one wants to go until the prayer meeting's over, and then everyone's glad they went. And that's the same with fighting sin. No one wants to grab a hold of something that hard, but once you do, you're delighted you did. And very often what's needed is you get up and you run, you flee, you call a friend, you text the, G the, the, the GCG, you, you run away from the sin. It really is that simple in terms of the action level. It really is that important. The second answer for unanswered prayer after sin is sovereignty. Sovereignty. Why are there unanswered prayers in our life? It's not always sin. I didn't want to miss the big one. I didn't want to miss an essential one for us to think about. But every unanswered prayer is not traceable back to sin. Turn to your neighbor and say, every unanswered prayer is not because of sin. Okay, now we're clear on that. Our God is a king. He's a sovereign. He has no term limits. No divisions of power. He is completely in control of all things at all times. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, says the scriptures. That's actually why we pray. The king, King Jesus, has told us to pray. Truly, truly, John 14, 12, I say to you, King Jesus says to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I, King Jesus, am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. His sovereign power and sovereign promises are why we pray. His sovereign rule is why we can actually trust him with unanswered prayers as well. Let me illustrate this in a few different ways. I want us to see two aspects of God's sovereignty. First, God's sovereign works are beyond our comprehension. Second, 
His sovereign ways are better than our ways. First thing is the sovereign works are beyond our comprehension. Now you need to know this because when you're dealing with unanswered prayer, the big question is, why? And the answer is, well, the answer for me is, I don't know. But the answer from the Bible is, because there's so much more going on than you know. In Daniel chapter 10, that's the part the preachers, most preachers stop their Daniel series at Daniel chapter 6, because that's where it gets real freaky after that. But Daniel chapter 10 is very instructive. Daniel's been grieving and fasting for three weeks, 21 days of grieving and fasting. God had given him a revelation, and then he spent 21 days going, what was that? Explain that to me, Lord. And in Daniel 10.2, we read these words. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, 21 days. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for full three weeks. So we read Daniel's been fasting. We can safely assume he's been praying because those two things work together. And what happens next is that basically the Son of God, before the incarnation, comes to visit him. I'm going to read you the description of who came to visit him. And if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you'll go, ah, I know that guy. John calls him Jesus. So here he is. He's been praying and fasting for three weeks. And he says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. If you go to the book of Revelation this afternoon, you'll find almost that exact same description describing the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel lived before the time of Jesus, so he must have been experiencing a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what Jesus says to Daniel. I'm just going to paraphrase it before I read it to you. He goes, I've been in a three-week-long fight with demons, and it took me a while to get here. He says, oh, Daniel. This is verse 11 through 14, if you want to look it up later today. Daniel 10, 11 through 14. O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling, and he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God. Your words have been heard. I heard you 21 days ago. I heard you three weeks ago, Daniel, when you first started fasting and praying. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Some character called the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which we have good reason to believe is not an earthly prince, but some sort of demonic force over Persia in that day. And then Jesus goes on to say, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael who's an angel of God, one of the chief princes came to help me. 
for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Now they're plural. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for the days yet to come. So here's the deal. 21 days ago, Daniel starts fasting. 21 days go by of intense fasting and praying, no answer. Jesus shows up and sh says, now I've been wrestling with the king, kings of Persia, and I made it through when Michael came and gave me a hand. Why did Jesus need a hand? I don't know. But we know that throughout his work with us, he humbles himself to be helped by angels, even the New Testament. And da Daniel tells us that, the, that Jesus finally got to him to give him the answer 21 days later after he had overcome this demonic warfare. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because next Friday I want to march around Louisville and conquer territorial spirits. Just kidding. Um, anyway, so uh, many would take a verse like this and work out a theology of we need to be fighting territorial spirits. We know them. Listen, I think this glimpse is not there for us to develop a full-blown theology and a new prayer strategy for the church. It's to give you a little glimpse that there's more going on than you know. Do you know that whole sequence in Job 1 and 2 where the devil goes to God and asks if he can tempt Job? You know who never knew about that sequence? Job. He walked through that whole time of suffering without knowing that there had been more going on than met his eye in terms of the Lord's dealing with Satan. And I don't think we're supposed to sit here and say, in my particular struggle, I know that the Prince of Kentucky is wrestling. I don't think we need to go there. But I would go here. When you're experiencing unanswered prayer, God in his sovereignty is dealing with more than you know. There is more happening in this battle for the advance of the kingdom in the world than you and I will ever see. And the secularism that we are baptized in in this culture, where we think all that is is all we see, is a detriment to us. And God graciously pulls back the curtain and says, if I'm not there right when you think I ought to be there, let me just assure you there's more going on than you know. The second thing I want you to see is this, about God's sovereignty. Not just that in his sovereignty there's more going on than you know, but in his sovereignty, his will is better than our will. His will is better than our will. I don't mean to imply that sometimes our will is better than his. No, only that sometimes our wills line up right away. So we pray something and he's like, yeah, that's exactly why I wanted to do it. And other times he's got something better. And I say better intentionally because no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If it was good for you, you'd have it right now. If it was good for you, you'd have it right now. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I remember Christy and I, when we uh, dropped out of seminary 22 years ago, don't follow that example, anyone who's in seminary, but that's what we did. And anyway, so when, when that happened, uh, we, we'd gotten into debt, we didn't want to be in debt, and we were praying that God would 
deliver us and provide some money for us. And we needed a new computer. And so we just started praying. And God actually didn't wind up ever providing that computer. But one of the things we used to do as we were praying is we thought to ourselves, he could fill this room with computers right now. He really could. No, no, there's, he, he can do, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can give you anything you need. And if you needed it and it was good for you, you'd have it right now. And if you don't have it, best about a sovereign wisdom and acknowledge that he's doing what's best. Let me illustrate that from the life of Paul, 1 Corinthians 12. He says he's got an affliction. We don't know whether it's, I don't know, liver, eyes, we don't know. He just calls it a thorn given me in the flesh. You ever thought about how good it is that the Bible's vague sometimes? If Paul said I had liver disease, then we would think this passage only applies to those with liver disease. But he says, I had a thorn given me in the flesh. And he calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, I'm going to imagine that was a real problem for Paul. Everywhere I go and try to plant a church, a church pops up. Every time I preach, miracles happen. Of all the theologians on the planet, I'm, I am the best, basically. And, and, and I'm not some heady theologian. I'm the most missions-minded guy on the planet. And those 12 guys that were with Jesus while he was alive, I work harder than all of them. So Paul needed a few things, and God made sure he got them. And he was given a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. And he was given some ailment or difficulty that humbled him. And he asked, totally righteously, that it be removed. And he just asked once. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Notice a number of things here. First, Paul's prayer was good and right and holy. You should pray to be healed. There's nothing wrong with praying for healing. In fact, we're called to desire such miraculous spiritual gifts. And we have no reason to think Paul was walking in sin so that his prayer wasn't answered. And still God says no. Why? It was for something greater. It was for a humble, empowered Paul. Have you ever read your Bible and thanked God there was a humble, empowered Paul? You ever liked anything Paul wrote? God made sure he was able to write those things by that thorn in his flesh. So often God's no's are really a desire to give us something better. In fact, we can say that God's no's always flow from a desire to give us something better. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Has he denied you a healing? Anyone? An easier situation. The salvation of a loved one. 
First of all, and we'll explore this in a minute, he's not doing this to deny you something good. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He is doing this to give you something better. Why doesn't it feel like we're getting something better when God denies us something desirable? There's a simple answer. Because we underestimate our sinfulness. If Paul had grown sullen and bitter because God had refused to remove his thorn, it would have been because he valued freedom from trials as a great, greater blessing than freedom from sin. The thorn hurt, but it kept him from the worst wicked sin of all, pride. And if Paul had grown sullen and bitter because God refused to remove his thorn, it would have been because he valued freedom from trials as a greater blessing than empowerment for ministry. Listen, if you're living in America today, you are influenced by the health and wealth gospel. God's loving me if I'm healthy and wealthy. But God's trials often strip away our health and they strip away the wealth of our circumstances. They lead us to be holy and empowered, but that wasn't what we were really going for. But if you're like, above all, I want to fight sin. And above all, I want to be useful for Christ. And then the ways he deals with Christians, they're perfect. They're perfect. The psalmist says, it is good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. If he has left us in some form of weakness, and we have refused to rejoice and say, my strength is made perfect in weakness, then today is the day to repent. Say, I'm going to take that weakness. I'm going to take that limitation. I'm going to take that no. And I'm going to praise the Lord who's wiser than I am. Or I could put it this way. I'm going to respond to the one who prayed that the cup would be passed from him. Can you imagine if God answered that prayer? Not a person here would be saved. If God had said, okay, Jesus, I will let that cup pass from you, not a person here would be saved. And that's why it's so glorious that he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The final reason for unanswered prayer that I will give is simply this. We stop. We stop praying. We stop praying too early. Many prayers often come after long, long seasons of prayer. Marie Monson, the missionary to China, prayed for revival for 20 years before it came. William Carey ministered for seven years in India before the first convert. Some of you have prayed for decades for a lost child to believe. The Bible knows this. It anticipates this in multiple ways. One way the Bible anticipates this fact that answered prayer often comes after years of unanswered prayers is the encouragements and the examples it gives. Let me make sure I make this plain. One of the ways the Bible shows you, I know it takes a long time. It, it usually, I won't say it usually takes God a long time as if, as if it, it's hard for him, but I will say it this way, God usually chooses to work over a long period of time. 
The way God shows us this is through both encouragements and examples. The most famous example comes from the story Jesus told, the one we read at the start of this sermon, the parable of the persistent widow. I won't reread it, but here's the logic of that persistent widow. Here's the logic of that parable. If this judge who doesn't give a rip about God and doesn't care at all about doing what pleases God, he's not laying in bed going, I really want to be a good judge for Jesus. Like he's not thinking like that at all, but he's got this widow who's wearing him out. Get out of my office. Get out of my inbox. You are always knocking on my door. Leave me alone. Okay, that's what you think is justice. You can have it. The logic goes like this. How much more your heavenly Father? He doesn't fear God. He is God. He, he who has all of this love for his saints, if you wear him out, asking and seeking and knocking, he'll answer you. So don't pray. And lose, don't lose heart. John Piper's a dad was reported to have said that most pastors leave their ministry just before the revival. That is, they pour themselves out and pour themselves out. Things are hard, 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 obstacle, obstacle, obstacle. And they're like, okay, that's enough. And if they just stayed a little bit longer, they would see the fruit they were longing for. Many Christians, I think, pray until just before the answers come. I, I heard a story I love years ago. I'll close with this. There was a church that had prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for revival. They'd worn themselves out praying for revival, and they'd never come. And so finally, the members of the church got together, and they said, okay, that's it. We'll do one more Wednesday night, and then, then we're done. And so they decided they'd have their last prayer time and then close up shop and say, I guess it's not will that God's, God's will that he revives us. And they gathered that one last time, and God poured out his spirit on them mightily in revival. God is very plain. I, I counted 25 how longs in the, in the Bible this week. 25 how longs. You know what's going on when you pray how long? You're like, what's implied in how long? This feels like too long. 25 times. How long? Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. Don't, don't give up. There may be prayers that are answered after you're dead. George Whitfield, not George Whitfield, George Mueller prayed for five friends for their conversion every day. I think two or three of them were converted after he died. But all of them were converted in answer to his prayers. Brothers and sisters, God does make us walk through unanswered prayers. And we should fight sin because God is disposed to answer our prayers as he sees us fighting sin. We should defer to sovereignty. If he's not doing exactly what you want, it's because he's wiser and better and he's not withholding any good thing from you. And you shouldn't stop. The great answers to prayer have always come after great, long, how long 
seasons of pleading with God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we pray that you would help us to walk in unanswered prayer, not with doubt and discouragement and despair, but with joy and hope. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.